talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is manning the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Easter Bunny has come and gone. Life goes on just with some more chocolate. Here's Scott Get that stuff away from me, man. Get those things away from me. I don't need any more chocolate. I don't need any chocolate eggs. Oh, it's worse than Halloween, I'll tell you. You don't even have to go to the house to get it. The Easter Bunny delivers it right in there. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diane and Dave. So, uh, you know, it, it's hilarious because uh, um, my daughter's home from school now. Uh, and so, you know, the dynamic of the house has changed a little bit. But I digress. Uh, Easter. Um, my boy is turning 15. My daughter's turning 20. Easter, it's no different than if they were 5 and 10. <laughs> it's really no different. Uh, and, and, you know, so we do the little, we do the Easter egg hunt. And, and they're not really the big fans of the, of the, the chocolate Easter eggs. It's the competition. It's the competition to beat your uh, sibling and collect more eggs. So, uh, first of all, you know, they don't want to get out of bed. Like, remember the days when, you know, it's like 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, the kids are banging on the door, Christmas. Not, well, not the case with teenagers. You can sleep in as late as you want. It doesn't matter. And usually with the Easter money, we say, hit our house last. You know, do all your other stuff, the important deliveries early, and then hit us last. Uh, they look at the Easter Bunny differently than Amazon, but I digress. So, uh, so like, can we get going here? Can we get, cause the dog's going nuts, right? You know what happens. You gotta put everything at least three feet, four feet off the ground, or it's, um, it, it's in the puppy and then out the other end, and you know how what that could be like. And then a trip to the vet. So, uh, so finally, uh, the only way we can get them down in out of, uh, their bedroom is, is there, is if we say the one is starting without them. And then all of a sudden they come like thundering out of the, out of the, uh, out of the bedrooms. And, you know, like my, my daughter doesn't even have her, yes, we still have a little Easter basket, the same one that they had when they were kids. So, uh, she, she doesn't even, um, bother to go grab that. She's just loading them into the, uh, into the pouch of her sweatshirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's really, you know, uh, it hasn't changed much, except that it's much faster. Uh, the elbows are a bit higher. Uh, sometimes they're swearing, which, you know, we're trying to, it's a religious holiday, kids. Come on. Let's, uh, let's keep the F bombs out of this. So, uh, another Easter. We hope you guys had a good one too. Uh, and we hope you all stayed healthy too and, and got through it all. All right. Feel free, like I said, to jump into the combo. Love to hear from you. Lots going on today in, uh, especially in, in, you know, there's a, a provincial election campaign. Well, it hasn't really started yet. And I'm really kind of like, I don't want to talk about it until it actually starts. Because, you know, we've had enough. So <laughs> I guess we need another election. Remember we had one uh, during the pandemic? So, you know, when it starts, you know, we'll talk about it. But that being said, uh, they are talking, introducing uh, new things, trying to get our attention. And the liberals are talking about a handgun ban. To which I said to Will, haven't they already been banned? 
I don't know. Because, I mean, we talk about this all the time. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what's different this time uh, to last time or, you know, that 15-year period that they were in. I'm not sure. Uh, and the Conservatives talking about building another 200 uh, kilometers of rail track uh, and uh, and get some expansion on go going on. So lots of big announcements coming up. Also, uh, Sunwing. Boy, if you're flying around and you're, uh, you're using Sunwing, they've had some uh, major check-in issues, and uh, Diane and Dave will keep you, keep you abreast of all of that, but literally slowed down their, uh, their ability to get people in and out and on and off airplanes. Uh, you can imagine you you got a computer glitch, how much that uh, slows you down. But uh, imagine being an airline. So uh, obviously we're watching that story as well. Uh, Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine. We're hearing more and more uh, how uglier that situation is. Uh, more sanctions against uh, Putin's daughter. Uh, daughters this time whether that has uh, any effect or not we'll uh, we'll have to see so that's where we're delving over the course of the afternoon we hope you uh you hang around and of course uh jump in also uh what's with the weather <laughs> you know did you, there's people out there come on put your hands up if you took your snow tires off come on come on uh yeah uh i, I saw some neighbors loading them out i don't know about that uh, many of us are old enough to remember mid, uh, you know, mid, uh, April, uh, snowstorms. They don't last very long, but boy, uh, they can certainly make a mess. Uh, and as we saw that over the course of the weekend, uh, no matter pretty much where you were. So we're going to talk, uh, I'm going to check in with Anthony Farnell, global news, uh, meteorologist and find out what is, uh, is this the last one? Seriously? Is it one, one more? Oh. Uh, and, and what the spring is going to look like. Also, almost one in four Canadian respondents to a new online survey say they have been infected with COVID-19. Who hasn't had COVID? And, you know, one in four, that seems extremely low to me. Uh, everybody, I'm thinking, knows somebody or a family that has had it if they have not had it uh, themselves. So we're going to talk about that. And, uh, you know... <laughs> At one point, I don't think we wanted to talk about if we had it, and now it seems we brag about it if we've had it. Oh, yeah, I've had it. I'm good. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, has got their national debt clock uh, running, and, and, and that'll push over the edge as well. As gas prices are going up like another, what, six, seven cents tonight? Holy smokes. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Go Transit, a big expansion project for them announced. We're going to talk to Marvin Ryder about that coming up a little later on as well. <laughs> Did you take the snow tires off? I huh? told you not to. Told you not to. Uh, you know, you, you, if you're a Canadian, you've been on the planet for any length of time, you know, April, we can always get the odd blast. And uh, usually it doesn't stay too long, but boy, when it comes, it can leave a bit of a mark. And you might have seen that over the course of the weekend. So what does it mean moving forward? Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Global News Meteorologist. He is with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a little bit busier than usual with all of that crazy weather going on. But uh, thankfully, it's melting today. And I think that's uh, making everybody happy. It's, uh, are you getting any sort of uh, social media from people who may have jumped the gun and took the snow tires off a little earlier uh, than they should have? Yeah, and uh, you weren't alone in advising people maybe it was a bad idea to do that, especially if you travel some of the higher terrain. Once you get away from Lake Ontario, there was snow, uh, in some cases, five to ten centimeters deep. So uh, summers, they don't handle that situation very well, especially when you're used to driving on your winter tires and then make that switch. So uh, we're probably okay from here on out. You heard it. 
from me, but uh, we may get some more flurries maybe late next week, but I don't think the accumulation will be there like we saw yesterday. Uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing considering the ground has thawed pretty much uh, how quickly it did accumulate, how quickly it did stay. So, uh, you know, I know you're not a betting guy, uh, you know, because you're a, you're a, you're a meteorologist and such, but uh, did I hear you say that's it? We are not getting anything more? I mean, can we, can we hold you to this, Anthony, or not? No, I, I, no, I, I would not hold me to that. <laughs> I, I, think, I think over the next week or so, we, we are headed in the right direction. We have a potential, at least on Sunday, to have highs well into the 20s, sunshine. Uh, Thursday's looking pretty good as well. So so there is some, some signs, some spring, some warmth on the way. But uh, the longer range computer models, the end of April, the first week of May, starts to turn quite cold again. Uh, By then, the average high is about 15 degrees, so it really takes a lot to get it to snow, and that's why I don't think we're going to see any more accumulation. But uh, there's always that, that outside chance. So uh, obviously, as you're saying, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while for spring to warm up. It's going to be a cooler uh, spring. Yeah, that, that's kind of something we, we've, we've thought about for a while now. We knew it was going to also be rather wet, and that tends to delay things as well when you have wet ground it takes a lot longer to warm up from that higher sun angle so we have a lot of things working against us but uh, at the end of the day uh, the seasons <laughs> will change and i know in past years i don't know something about the last decade we've had this quick transition from winter spring to okay there we go it, it's summer mm-hmm. all of a sudden and, and then once it arrives it, it stays uh, well, lots of snow over the course of the winter, precipitation. Uh, what, what's the ground going to be like this spring? Is there going to be a lot of flooding? Um, again, we've had, it seems we had a lot more snow than normal this year. We did, but uh, a lot of that's melted, uh, well, other than what fell yesterday. But uh, that goes for, for areas around Hamilton, also up in cottage country. We avoided the, the significant flooding, I think partly because we had that February thaw. We don't typically get a big melt in February. It caused its own flooding, but it also reduced the snowpack. So uh, some good news there. I'm not expecting a big flood year. I, I know the Great Lakes are running high, but they're nowhere near where they were a couple of years ago. So uh, we're just going to have to worry about these showers and, and maybe flurries from time to time. But uh, yeah, the days where, where it does get nice, enjoy that. I think it's not till mid-May that we really come out of this pattern and, and we can wear shorts and t-shirts every day after that it seems that once we get into uh, double uh, double digits and, and some of the warmer temperatures you're talking about later this week uh, people get out into the yard out in the garden they start getting ambitious uh, still a little too early to be out there planning stuff yeah i mean it, it, i guess it depends what what you want to put in i i myself or i'm about to put in uh, some some kale uh, some uh, broccoli seeds uh, getting the lettuce in uh, those are those can handle slightly below freezing uh, when it comes to tomatoes peppers uh, a lot of your your more annual flowers i, I would definitely wait because uh, there's going to be more frost tonight in particular and then again late next week so we're, we're still a couple of weeks away from anything else but uh you know what it's 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 tempting it's so tempting when you see yeah. the green lawns to, to get things planted uh especially with with some recent rains all right, so what can we expect the rest of this uh, week, Anthony, in the Hamilton area? 
Well, uh, it, it's going to warm up for sure. We have another system that's going to bring some rain. This is a warm front that moves through on Thursday. It'll be mostly early in the day. Uh, and then uh, Friday looks nice. Saturday, uh, we're, we're dealing with another front that comes through, a warm front. The big question I have this weekend is, is Sunday because, as you know, where Hamilton's located, uh, oftentimes you can get that stubborn spring east wind off of the cold water of Lake Ontario and maybe areas to the west, Brantford, uh, warms up to the mid-20s, and we're just stuck at 9 degrees in Hamilton. So that's a possibility on Sunday, but I'm hopeful that eventually the warmth will win out and and we'll see uh, some of that weather moving in. Anthony Farnell with us, Global News Meteorologist. Anthony, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. All right, same to you. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we, you know, we've been doing this, uh, the COVID uh, dance for what, over two years now? I don't even keep track of it anymore. I used to, but then I think I ran out of paper or pens. <laughs> anyway, um, long story short, uh, everybody knows somebody, it appears, who has had it or has had it or you know, has had it themselves or a family member or, or what have you. And it's interesting over the course of these two years, uh, you know, the holidays have always been an issue in the sense that after the holidays, usually, you know, seven days, 14 days afterwards, we start to see increase in cases. We talked about that every single holiday for the last two years. Obviously, uh, coming off of Easter, uh, you know, we can expect to see that again. Uh, hospital numbers uh, are, again, keep uh, ticking up. The one thing to remember, though, and this is interesting as you break down the hospital numbers, uh, 55% of those people who have been hospitalized uh, and are tested positive uh, for COVID, 55% of them are going in there for other reasons. And then as soon as you go into the hospital, they test you because they don't want to spread. So, um, and, and isolate if needed. But these people didn't necessarily go in, or they didn't go in for COVID. They went in for other reasons, whether it's car accident, a heart, a heart attack, whatever. And it's like, oh, you got COVID and uh, off you go. It, it's interesting uh, how our attitude on this has changed probably since Omicron and the fact that it is much milder. Uh, form of the virus. Also, we are, uh, so many of us, over 90%, 12 plus have been fully vaccinated. I think it's 85%, 5 plus. So uh, obviously we're in a different situation than what we were uh, a year or two ago. And uh, the issue with this variant, it spreads. And, uh, you know, it started around Christmas and it seems to have gone through pretty much every family in some form. How has your opinion of this change, let's bring in uh, Dave Schultz, uh, Executive VP of Leger, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you very much. So do you find people's attitudes are changing about this? Like at one time when, uh, you know, people had it, shh, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Now it's like it's almost a badge of honor. I, I've had it, and I know somebody else that's had it. <laughs> Has their opinion on uh, being forthright about this changed? Well, I, I think in the beginning, people were a little bit concerned about if, if I tell someone I have it, um, are they going to be worried that I'm going to give it to them or yeah. or who did you get it from? There was a, a negative side to that. Now we're seeing people, as you said, they're much more open about it. As a matter of fact, I'm recovering from COVID right now myself. So, mm. uh, so there, you know, we, we put it out Welcome there to and the we're club. to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a club now. Welcome to it. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. But it, but it's still a bit of an exclusive club. 
because we asked people if they had tested positive at all at any time in the last year, or sorry, if they had had COVID, whether they tested positive or not. And 22% of Canadians said they have, while 77% still say they have not. So it may be something we're starting to hear more and more about, but we're we're not, and it, that number is increasing, as you said, with the recent Omicron, but it's uh, it's still only just over 7 million Canadians that have so said one they've, in, uh, they've had COVID. So one in four seems a little low to you then? It, well, don't forget, this is 18 plus. This right, is, Our right, survey yeah. was only with 18. Mm-hmm. So we're not getting the teenagers and children right. within this. So one in four of adults is about where mm-hmm. is about what we're seeing right now. And so what about our, uh, are we still as fearful of this as we once were? We, we are not. Um, you know, it, the numbers have gone up and down. It's really interesting to see where we're at. We're actually much less concerned about contracting the virus now than we were, you know, let's say we've been tracking that number since March of 2020. And uh, we're now at about 40, uh, sorry, 44% who are afraid. Uh, 45% are not afraid. It's one of the first times we've seen a shift the other way over in the last two years. So we're just starting to see that recovery period of, of fear going away. And that's being equated in mental health as well. Uh, we're seeing uh, in terms of people who saying they have excellent or very good mental health during this crisis, that's up to 37%. Uh, it's getting up to numbers that we saw at the beginning of COVID, but haven't seen for some time now as well. Do you think people, uh, one of the reasons the fear is, is leveling off is that everybody knows somebody, it seems that's had it. That, but also, or they, they feel they know someone who's had it. Mm-hmm. It's also to go with the symptoms. So of those quarter of Canadians that had it, we asked, what, how would you rate your severity of your symptoms? And about two thirds of them had mild or no symptoms at all. So and I think as we've seen in this last wave, it's, it seems to be easier to catch, but people aren't feeling the way they did, uh, say, a year ago with it. Um, and, and then also as we've become more vaccinated. So it's interesting yeah. that when you look at vaccination status, um, I said 22% of Canadians overall said they've been infected with it. It's 20% of those who are vaccinated compared to 38% of those who are not vaccinated. And when I look at severity of symptoms, it's a higher, you know, people who are not vaccinated are more likely to have severe symptoms and people who are vaccinated are more likely to have no symptoms. So there's a, there's a shift there as we're, as we've gotten vaccinated and we see people around us getting sick and, it, and it's mild. So we seem to be a little more comfortable with it. Um, some are worried that uh, vaccine hesitancy is, and it's not even so much that people are hesitant, it's just that they're not as concerned about it, I guess. Are you concerned that vaccine rates uh, won't continue to be as strong if we have this sort of attitude? Are we seeing that? Well, I, I think people have had a long two years. Yeah. And if we go into another wave where, and they're already talking about boosters for people who, immuno, who are immunocompromised or work in healthcare situations, if they say we need to get a fourth booster, given that um, our mental health is feeling good, we're less likely to think we're going to get the, uh, the virus, and 55% of Canadians think the crisis is behind us, uh, then yeah, that could severely impact us if we need to go to that next wave. However, every time we've started to feel good about this, yeah. um, you know, in terms of the crisis being behind us, uh, and then Omicron came around, 
that attitude changed. So we see multiple times when Delta hit us, when Omicron hit us, people were starting to feel positive, and then they said, okay, there's, there's another crisis. So I think we'll still have people lining up for vaccinations if another wave hits us strongly, but you're right, it's going to be hard to get people out. Uh, what about age groups? Does it differ much depending on uh, what demographic you're in? In terms of whether they think this is, uh, this is over or not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does a little bit. Uh, the uh, Actually, I'm sorry, across the board, age, it doesn't make a difference. Where it does make a difference is whether you are living in an urban or suburban or rural area of Canada. People who live in big cities are still more, about 50-50, are willing to think that we're still in the middle of the crisis. Right. So if you're further away, then you're more likely to do it. But it's interesting. Uh 18 to 55 plus, it's 55% across the board, no change by age, hmm. which is a rarity for this, this type of phenomenon. Usually we've seen uh, people ready to move on uh, the younger they are. Now it's across all groups. Dave Schultz with us, Executive VP of Leger, gauge, uh, gauging how we feel at this stage of a global pandemic. Dave, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Thank you very much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. Remember, uh, who said that has the doomsday clock? You know, when the end of the world is coming? Well, what about if you did the same thing, but uh, it counted the debt? <laughs> well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation have done just that. Uh, they have a national debt clock that's driving around showing you how quickly... The debt is going up. Now, that'll that'll start your day with a smile, won't it? Uh, the new debt clock uh, The new debt clock will be at uh, Hamilton City, City Hall tomorrow at 9.30. And you can sit there and watch your, uh, you can watch the country's debt go up in real time. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He is with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So are, 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 how concerned do you think Canadians are about this? Because it seems, you know, as, as long as we think that someone has their back, you know, uh, the Canadians don't seem to be really bothered by this. Is there tune changing here? Well, I think Canadians are really concerned about this for a few reasons. I mean, number one, um, you see in poll after poll, and, and I've been on the road all over Canada, and I've heard it uh, directly, is that Canadians are worried about inflation. And Canadians are worried about how the debt, the printing press, is increasing inflation. And also Canadians are worried about how, at the end of the day, are we going to pay for the unprecedented amount of government spending that we have been seeing going on, not just during the pandemic, but years before the pandemic as well, right? We are already more than $1 trillion in debt federally. The debt is increasing by $1,600 every second. And this government has no plan, no idea how it's ever going to bring its budget back to balance. So what's the purpose of this clock? What, 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 obviously, it's an attention grabber. It, it gets you on to talk about this sort of stuff. But, but what is it about seeing this that is, you, you think is going to have an impact for people? Well, we're here to sound the alarm. We're here to raise awareness. Um, because a lot of people, too, when they see the clock for the first time, they're taken back by just how big the debt is. I mean, we have a huge digital display on a very big truck, and it shows 13 digits of debt, $1 trillion, and it's going up fast. Um, but, you know, that, I think, is real eye-catcher. But the most important figure on this clock, to me at least, is the Your Share. And it shows that each Canadian is on the hook for $30,000 in federal debt. 
Now, I don't have tens of thousands of dollars lying around to pay for my federal politician's credit card bills, and I know many Canadians don't as well. But here's something else that I've heard on the road. And Canadians are worried that they are setting up their kids and grandkids for financial failure because of the massive debt tab that this government is racking up. By 2070, debt per person, government debt per person, is expected to reach $67,000. So that would be a huge tax bill that the government is piling up on the Canadian kids and grandkids, and many Canadians think that is just not fair. Uh, I'll play devil, uh, devil's advocate here, Franco. Um, you know, it's been a global pandemic, lots of money going out the door, lots of people have needed help. Um, you know, the government will, will say that's why we are where we are. But that it's not where, why we are where we are. Let's look at pre-pandemic, let's look at post-pandemic for a second. Pre-pandemic, the federal government was spending all-time highs. And yes, that's even after including inflation and population changes over the 100-plus years which means that in 2018, before there was a Canada-wide recession, before there was the pandemic that was, as you mentioned, a global pandemic, the government was spending more in 2018 than the federal government did during any single year during World War II. So you had the federal government throwing money out the door, left, right, and center, before COVID-19 ever touched down in Canada. But also, let's look ahead. We just got a budget that forecasts all the way out until 2027. And even in that time, the government has no plan to balance the budget. The best that this government is willing to do is to bring its deficit into the single-digit billion. But given the Trudeau government's track record, remember they promised to balance the budget in 2019, I don't even think they're going to meet that target. Um, many have said uh, we're in still, even though interest rates are creeping up, uh, we're still in historically low uh, interest rate uh, environment. Uh, how concerned are you that these rates are starting to go up? Very concerned. I'm very concerned, and not just for the pain that it's going to cause many Canadians in the day-to-day, their house, for example, but just this massive deficit and how it's going to balloon the debt even further. Even today, where we're seeing relatively historically low interest rates, every single month, taxpayers are still losing out on $2 billion just to cover the federal government's credit card bills, just the interest charges on the government's credit card bills. So that's $2 billion every single month that cannot go to improving healthcare capacity, which which clearly we need. It's $2 billion every single month that cannot go to uh, improving roads. And it's $2 billion every single month that can't stay in Canadians' pockets through lower taxes because that money is wasted on interest charges. And, and that $2 billion every single month, it, it's already going up and up and up, even with relatively low interest rates. So as interest rates tick up, if they boom up, I think Canada is in for a, a, a world of pain. Franco Terrazano with his federal director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, in town tomorrow, Hamilton City Hall with the National uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation National Debt Clock. Franco, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Birthday <laughs> alert! All right, uh, birthday in the house, birthday in the house. Who's going to be? It's 410, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber's behind the board. Is your birthday, Will? (laughs) Not today. Don't think it. Which Uh, Will is it? Diana and Dave in the newsroom. Uh, I think it's their birthday. Uh, What about uh, Erskine in the cloud? Will, is it your birthday today? (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Yes, yes, it is. It is my birthday indeed. 
Well, happy birthday to you, Will. Uh, can you share with us how old you are today, or should I, is that an impolite question to ask? Uh, I'm just a few years shy of Ted Michael's age. Let's say that. Just a few. So you're older than I am then. Jeez, that's that's incredible. And happy birthday to you. Did you celebrate already over the weekend or are you celebrating tonight? Uh, I had a I had a fairly eventful weekend, but uh that was all kind of intermingled with uh with, you know, regular long we- uh Easter long weekend stuff. So I am celebrating a tiny bit tonight. So uh, really, it's been like an all weekend celebration, is what you're telling us here. Yeah, yeah, more or less. I, I'd say uh, I, I crammed in some midnight movies because I'm going back to theaters again, Scott. I'm going to the movies again. Beautiful. Now, will you be masking th- for your birthday tonight? Uh, I'm going to be masking when it's uh, responsible and where it should be. But considering I am probably <laughs> getting some food at some point, uh, it's a little tough to try to cram like uh, like fish and chips in under the mask. Yeah. So I'll just make sure yeah, I'm near a window a or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great time. Uh, happy birthday to you. Many, many more. If I was there, we'd give you the bumps and the patty wax. But, uh, you know, uh, have a great one and happy birthday from all of us. Thank you very much, and thank you for ordering me in the studio for this, Scott. You're, uh, <laughs> sounds like he's on another planet somewhere. We have to, like, beam this guy up from somewhere. Elon uh, Musk celebrating got involved, a you know. That's <laughs> hey, yeah, there, there's my uh, birthday ha- wish. We're trying to book Elon for the show. Elon, get on here and talk with Scott. <laughs> Well, it'll be on your party. It'll be at your party anyway, so see if we can get him uh, to the show. Uh, why not? Uh, happy birthday to Will. The Ontario government announcing it's one step closer to bringing uh, all-day two-way uh, commuter train service to the uh, Greater Golden Horseshoe region, which includes Hamilton. Uh, the province says it's awarded a contract to work on a design and schedule optimization and key initial construction work for the Go Transit expansion. Uh, this phase will include delivery of overhead electrification, a new electric train fleet, upgraded uh, consist- uh, control systems, expanded track, uh, instructors along uh, a corridor. The interesting part is um, the, the, apparently the expansion project will build 200 kilometers of new track and electrify more than 600K of existing track. Uh, to talk more about all of this and what it means, because we talk about this a lot and it, sometimes it just doesn't seem to happen. Marvin Ryder with us, pro- uh, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well and glad to join you. We hear about these projects a lot, but, you know, it, it just never really seems to make any difference. What stands out about this one is they're actually talking about building new track and new lines. Right. Well, there's a lot of things going on here. So this is an agreement between Metrolinx, who normally, normally is involved in these things and does the work themselves, but instead they've partnered with a new uh, consortium, called on express on express one of the key players there is alstom now you might know that name alstom they design train cars and subway cars what have you uh... in europe but uh... over the last year given some of the problems at bombardier they've also acquired bombardier's assets so they're a key player in here along with acon a e c o n they are a major contractor and this is what's known as a design build operate and maintain contract this is also a great example of a private public partnership now this thing is so massive that we don't know a dollar value in fact what they announced today is they're beginning a two-year process two-year process to scope out all of the work that's going to be done 
cost it all out, and in two years, i.e. in 2024, that's when they're going to put a price tag to it. Scott, between you and I on the walls, this is certainly a multi-billion dollar contract. It will not shock me at all if the final price point for this is on the order of something like 12 or $15 billion, because not only are they going to lay new track, not only are they going to electrify the existing track and the new track, get rid of the diesel engines, but it's meant to be a complete upgrade of all the rolling stock as well. So all of the current cars, all of the current engines are going to be replaced with brand new things, and really what they're trying to do is be ready to start delivering up to 200 million daily transit trips by the year 2040, that's looking 20 years down the road. Today, Go Transit handles 55 million people. So this is a significant expansion of the entire system. Why are we ha- why are we having this discussion now? It seems that we've had it in the past and then it never goes anywhere. We remember, you know, back as far as the 70s, I'm talking about high-speed rail between uh, Windsor and Montreal or what have you. Why are we having these discussions now? Uh, obviously, we see the need to plan. Yeah, I, I I don't I'm not sure this is I'm not sure this is exactly what I'd call an election goodie. In other words, putting it out now isn't going to get any party a few more votes in, at the start of June when the provincial election will be held. I think this is part of the evolution. Now, if you go back to Kathleen Wynne, and I'm sorry to bring up a name from the past, but under her government, they had talked about electrifying the GO train routes, and the problem at that point was that the routes were owned by CN, and that uh, it's all well and good to say, well, I'm going to put you know, electrification and, and the, the catenary arches, what have you, that you need above to transmit the electricity to the trains. But uh, Via said, wait a minute, these are our lines, they're not your lines. So I'm not sure if there's been some break with CN. CN has suddenly said, okay, let's talk, let's, let's see what we can do with all this. This may have been something. And then it may also have been simply the idea that as infrastructure has tried to, Infrastructure Ontario has tried to deliver these other projects, Remember the LRT in Eglinton? Uh, there's going to be an LRT here in Hamilton. Maybe they're discovering that some of these projects are just so big that it's difficult for them to do it, maybe even difficult for Infrastructure Ontario. So they've called in some cavalry. I'm not just sure what the catalyst for this is, but this is the kind of uh, commuting transformation that has been talked about for two decades. Yeah, it's been talked about for a long time, Marvin. Uh, different now in a post-pandemic world, it seems that we're, we're, we seem to be looking ahead now. Yeah, uh, I, I would have to believe that there may also be some federal money that would percolate into this and, and that this mm-hmm. may be part of some greater deal between Ontario and, and the federal government on how we're going to get out of all this. The, the key part of the announcement, I've been reading the press release today, they keep talking about you know, thousands of jobs in the construction of this over the next probably 10 years or more. So I'm sure some of that is is part of COVID bounce back and helping the recovery. But I think it's also a realization that if the government's projections on the number of people who are supposed to move into the, they now call it the greater Golden Horseshoe area, by the way, rather than even the greater Toronto Hamilton area. But if their numbers are right, you know, we'll be clogged on the roads if everyone's driving a car. So we really do need to get serious about improving the infrastructure Again, keep in mind, two years' worth of planning, I don't know what's going to come out of the other side, but it sounds terrifically ambitious. Uh, on another note, Marvin, um, just driving around this weekend, whether I'm hearing uh, messages in media, whether I'm seeing it, whatever, an awful lot of people are hiring. A lot of people are, are posting that they're looking for 
for workers. I mean, yeah. you see it everywhere. Right. And what they're also telling you is it's hard to find them. So this is now two years after the start of the COVID pandemic, and our unemployment rate is below, below where it was when we started COVID, meaning all the people mm. who were temporarily let out of jobs are have been brought back. So if you're looking for workers and what they are finding, what employers are finding, is that workers are a little fussier after COVID, meaning that where once upon a time somebody might be willing to work two or three part-time jobs for minimum wage to put together enough to live, they're coming back and they're saying, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to work 20 hours here and 16 hours there and another 16 hours over there. I want full-time employment. So a lot of these more part-time type jobs are going uh, unfilled. Now, we do have a boatload of students coming out of post-secondary education uh, over the next couple of weeks leading into May. I suspect they'll be, not be quite so picky. They'll want the money so they can go back to school in the fall, what have you. But employers are going to have to sharpen their pencils. If they're going to fill those jobs, they may have to offer a little better wage. They may have to offer a little better benefit, and they may have to offer more hours because people are saying, I, I don't want to kill myself the way I did before. And can I also note that during COVID, a number of those workers used that time to maybe upgrade skills, go back to school, get a diploma in something. So they're now using their enhanced skills to try to get better jobs, which I have to applaud. But it does mean that if you're offering these basic jobs, it's going to be harder to get people to do them. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, as you've been hearing on the newscast, uh, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, leaving City Council after 12 years, going to run for the Ontario Liberals in Hamilton East Stony Creek riding. This was uh, the riding held by Paul Miller. The NDP have been uh, in charge of that since 2007. To talk more about all of this, Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, surprised that Jason Farr has taken the jump into uh, provincial politics, and and what can you learn from city council to take with you? Yeah, I'm not entirely surprised. Uh, I mean, there was a sense that uh, Jason Farr was, you know, uh, had ambitions beyond Hamilton City Council, and certainly after 12 years, it's not surprising that he might take on a new challenge. Uh, I think one of the big difficulties of moving from uh, municipal politics uh, up to, you know, the provincial or federal politics is that you go from being a part of the government, right? Part of the the city council that makes the decisions about budgets to, in most cases, either, you know, sitting on the back benches far from power or, you know, mm. sitting in the opposition and, you know, really being uh, reduced to the role of a critic. Um, and so I think for, you know, many uh, formal m- municipal politicians, it's a really frustrating move because you go from really being able to make decisions as well as being close to the people, uh, you know, to in many cases playing the theater of politics and not having the same close relationship with your constituents. Once you've been in any role, especially at city council for 12 years, have you done everything you can do? Many were complained for years that it's been the same old council or the same base council for a long period of time. Well, I think it really depends on the councillor. I mean, it's worth asking, you know, what are the, the big files that Jason Farr managed to achieve in his time as a councillor? And, uh, you know, he's working in a kind of a difficult situation. I mean, I think there are some councillors that have been there a long time and, and haven't achieved a great deal. There's others 
you know, who seem to manage to, to continue making contributions. But yeah, it probably isn't unhealthy overall to have councillors, you know, not stay forever to, to go and try new things. Um, you know, the idea of term limits is, I mean, obviously not possible under <laughs> existing municipal act, but, you know, it's a bit controversial because there's skills involved in terms of understanding how the city works and, and being able to make the most of, of the levers that are there that you learn from experience. But it's true after 12 years, that, you know, maybe a time uh, to move on uh, and, and to try new things. What about the rippling effect at City Hall? We've seen a few changes that are coming. Well, I mean, I think it's ultimately healthy, right? Uh, it's, I think it's healthy to get new voices onto City Council on a regular basis because it's easy to get complacent uh, and to just keep doing things the way you've always, always done them. And I, I think when we look at Hamilton City Council, uh, you know, it's not a council that can claim, you know, many huge, uh, you know, victories or, you know, that they've really come up with great solutions to the problems that are plaguing mm -hmm. Hamilton. So in that context, you know, to have fresh voices, uh, you know, to change the culture that's there, you know, these are things that are, you know, pretty important. I mean, a, a case in point would be that report that came out about one of the councillors' misconduct, <laughs> where it noted they'd never seen, you know, such behaviour mm -hmm. at, you know, a, a city council meeting. And yet the rest of the councillors, when that were happening, were just fine to let it happen. So I think that's kind of an indication of how a council can get in a way of doing things and not realize out of keeping with, uh, you know, best practices, uh, their way of acting is. What's the biggest challenge moving from, uh, you talked about being able to control more at the city level uh, than certainly at the provincial level. Uh, Jason Farr was talking about the divisions between the left and the right and such in politics. Um, what's the biggest challenge moving forward? Well, I mean, I think a, a challenge for, you know, a, a municipal politician is that as a municipal politician, you're your own person. You're running as, you know, Jason Farr or as, you know, uh, you know, whichever councillor it is, you're you're putting forward your own name and you have the freedom to come up with your own positions. You know, suddenly uh, you take on, you know, a party label and you have to, you know, toe that party's line and you have to campaign yeah. on that. And you're going to have people challenging you on, you know, things that you're running on that you actually don't necessarily believe in. I think we saw that in the last, uh, you know, the last federal election where we had Vito Scro, you know, who had run his whole mayoral campaign against uh, light rail transit, suddenly having to support the federal Liberal Party that was standing behind it. So, you know, those kinds mm. of situations, uh, you know, you move from being your own person to suddenly having to, to play on a team and to, you know, defend things that you might not actually believe in. What about FAR's chances? Uh, this seat, an NDP stronghold for a period of time, uh, the seat formerly held uh, by Paul Miller before his situation with the NDP, and, and he was ousted. What about this this campaign, this seat? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in many ways what was keeping it as an NDP seat was Paul Miller and the power of incumbency. Uh, you know, over time, that seat's become, I think, less and less natural for the NDP. They've changed the boundaries that, you know, the, that took out the, the part between Ottawa Street and Kenilworth. Uh, you know, with every year, there's a new subdivision that's built in there. And I think the sort of demographics of that are generally going to be, you know, more supportive of people voting liberal or uh, conservative. So it's not surprising that federally that's become a fairly safe uh, liberal seat over the past three federal elections. Um, but this time, you know, there's... It's kind of a four-way race. If, if Miller runs again, uh, the NDP will no doubt uh, run hard to try and hold that seat. The Conservatives seems to have uh, uh, some kind of hope with, you know, a, a washed-up CFL player uh, running for them. Um, so, you know, it could be a pretty uh, close four-way race when all is said and done.
Uh, today, two major uh, announcements uh, from the liberals and the conservatives heading into this uh, provincial election campaign. Uh, the Ontario conservatives announcing a, a massive rail uh, expansion for GO, uh, and the liberals talking about a handgun ban. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think it's it's kind of consistent with... Um, you know how those parties are trying to position themselves. The the Ford mm-hmm. uh, government, you know, last time was all about let's get government out of the way, let's have smaller government and lower taxes. This time around, it's like let's spend all the money <laughs> and let's spend all the money building infrastructure for economic growth. And so some of that is highways, uh, some of it is also, uh, you know, investment in in rail and you know subways in Toronto. And so. You know, I think it's consistent with the message that we're going to see out of uh, the the Ford government that happy times are here again. You know, there's new investments in the auto sector and the like. For the Liberals, uh, you know, I think with Stephen Del Duca, they're going to have a harder time uh, appealing to the kind of the uh, center left base of the party that Kathleen Wynne was very popular with, particularly in Toronto. And so, uh, a handgun ban, I think, is is a way to appeal to that, but also, you know, deeper into the the 905 suburbs, uh, people who might be quite conservative, uh, you know, who are worried about the violence in their community. And this is a way that the liberals can signal that they're taking it, you know, seriously and causes some issues for the the conservatives, you know, who have a rural base that certainly wouldn't support that ban. So it's it's kind of smart wedge politics for the liberals. Peter Grave with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Are you, uh, as we go through a global pandemic, uh, two years now, has it made you more religious, less? Have you even thought about any of this? Uh, Many Canadians now believe that uh, Catholicism, evangelical Christianity, and Islam are more damaging to society than beneficial. A new survey shows as people across the country continue to turn their backs on religion. A new Angus Reid survey released Monday has shone a light on perceptions of certain religions in a post-pandemic Canada at a time when religion in the country is already at an all-time low. To talk more about all of this and what it means, uh, Ray Pennings is with us, Executive Vice President of the Think Tank Cardis, who partnered with Angus Reid on the poll and is with us now. Ray, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am very well. Hope you are too. Yes, thanks so much. Any surprises here for you, Ray? Uh, we come out of a global pandemic. Things are changing pretty quickly. People's views, people's priorities. How much uh, of a role do you think the pandemic has played in all of this? Are we were we heading there anyway? I think there's a, a couple of things. So, so yes, to be sure, the pandemic has played a very major part of it. Um, just prior to the pandemic, actually, we did a poll on social isolation. It was interesting. The biggest factors in terms of mental health, depression, and social isolation and all the negative things were not income or education or where you lived. Um, the two biggest factors that would prevent you from feeling socially isolated were your family status, how connected you were to your family, and your involvement in a religious community. Uh, what we've seen, obviously, over the last two years in pandemic is both of them. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, we've been isolated in our own homes. It's not just the the challenge in terms of worship and corporate activities in a, in a faith community, but it is also the care for our neighbor, the care for fellow faith members. Um, so 
it's not surprising at all to see um, challenges there in which uh, when, you know, we've taken away those things that we know to be antidotes to social isolation and challenges, uh, we're not feeling so positive about ourselves or about our neighbors. So lockdowns and just preventing people from, uh, you know, from various churches from getting together has all has obviously set this back. That, that's certainly one factor. Um it's interesting you cited the, the negative perceptions um, in the introduction of, of Catholics, Protestants, and, and Muslims. It's been interesting. We've been asking that question since 2018. The biggest factor in that, uh, so, you know, the question, the question is, would you say the overall presence of each of these groups in public, Canadian public life is benefiting or damaging Canada, Canadian society? What is interesting about that, it is not the particular religion you are a part of, whether you're a Muslim, Hindu, um, as to whether what you think of the others. It's not as if Jews don't like Muslims or, you know, vice versa. What is interesting is the more religious you are, and we measure seven religious activities. If you do six or seven of those religious activities, you tend to think more positively of every other religious group. Conversely, If you do zero or one of those activities, you are negative pretty well towards every other religious group. So this is a factor of, you know, particularly the one in five Canadians or so who are the most irreligious being particularly negative about, you know, the the cross-section of Canadians who are more religious. Now, there's a spectrum, and, you know, it is right across, but there is certainly the most significant factor is your own religiosity as to how you view people of whatever other religion. So if you are a religious person, you're most likely to view others who are of various different religions more positively than those who are non-practicing them. And and the question wasn't about the individual. The question was about their contribution to public life. So you're more likely to recognize the fact that, you know, religious people, for example, give four times as much to charity as non-religious people, um, twice as much to secular charities. Uh, You're more likely to recognize the fact that, you know, the social services downtown Hamilton um, are made up by, you know, organizations that are Mm -hmm. significantly supported by religious communities. What about uh, the discovery of uh, residential schools and and graves, unmarked graves and such, over the the course of the last year? How has that changed Canadians' perception, obviously, of the Catholic Church? Yeah, the Catholic, um, you know, if we take a look at the overall trends, the Catholic, uh, the perception of the Catholic Church has been more, has gone down more significantly than any other group uh, since we last asked this question two years ago. And, you know, there's little doubt, just given, you know, the coverage of that event, um, you know, I, I, I think it's inevitable that that has had a significant impact. And, you know, I think religion is a complex thing. There were good and bad in religion um, along the way. And when our, when our focus is on some of the challenging things that happen within religion, commu- religious communities, whether that has been, you know, regardless of which community that is in, um, obviously that, you know, the brand, the brand, it's not good for the brand. Do you see this trend changing? Because it has been going on for a period of time, although maybe increasing during a pandemic. I think there are lots of signs of hope within this. Uh, first of all, when you take a look at the core numbers, so as I mentioned, we measure seven religious activities. 
Those who do six or seven of those, which is the category that we call very religious, that group really hasn't changed. It's been at about 16% uh, within the margin of error throughout. Similarly, those who are totally non-religious also hasn't changed significantly. It's gone slightly up, but it's still just over 20%. The movement has happened almost entirely within the middle of the religious spectrum. So when I take a look at that, when I look at the fact that immigrants are almost twice as likely to be religious as those who were born in Canada, when I take a look, and this probably would be a surprise to, to most of our listeners, in the last seven days, the group most likely to have gone to a place of worship or in the last 30 days to have read a religious text are those under 30. There is far more hostility towards religion in the baby boomers than there is in the under 30 crowd. Wow, there you go. Uh, Ray Pennings with his executive vice president of Think Tank Cardis, partnering up with Angus Reid on uh, Canadians and their view of religion in a post-pandemic world. Ray, fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's uh, You too. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're watching uh, Russia continue to hammer away at Ukraine, uh, trying to at least uh, take the eastern part of that country. To bring you uh, an update, Lucan Wei is with us, professor with the Social Sciences Department, University of Toronto, specializing in authoritarianism, Russian post-communist politics, and is with us now. Lucan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So obviously, uh, Lucan, at the beginning of all of this, uh, many thought, including Russia, that this would be over in a couple of days. Obviously, it's dragged out now. We saw Russian ret- uh, Russia retreat, uh, reload per se, and then now concentrate on uh, the eastern areas uh, of the country. That being said, is Ukraine capable of keeping control of those areas, or is it just a matter of time with Russia concentrates on those regions? Well, I think, you know, we the world has learned that you should never underestimate Ukrainians. Everybody thought mm. that uh, Ukraine would fall after a few days after the Russian invasion, and, and they've shown themselves to be enormously powerful. So I would definitely, you know, not discount the possibility of a Ukrainian um, victory in this war. Uh, that's fascinating because many have seen uh, Putin and, and the failed attempts by the Russian uh, military and thought when this regroup uh, happened that at least he would concentrate on these areas. Will this, does this, can he position this of a, as a win even if he does take these regions? Well, you know, whether he positions a, as a win or not is entirely up to him. I mean, he can stop this war and anytime he wants, but, you know, uh, Putin right now has decided that he really wants to destroy Ukraine. So I think that, you know, what really disturbs me about Russia's behavior, if you look at the state media, um, they um, there's been a real sort of kind of increase in genocide talk. They really talk about Ukrainians as inherently Nazis. And I think what we're going to see now is really sort of tremendous amounts of mass violence. And that's what I'm most concerned about. That was my next question to you, Lucan, is are you really fearful that this is going to get quite ugly as they try to finish this off? Yeah, I mean, it'll get quite ugly. I don't think they will finish this off, off even if you know, uh, Russia declares military victory. I mean, Ukraine has you know, tremendous amounts of arms from the West. 
um, has tremendous amounts of desire to fight. I mean, there's ultimately no way that Russia can ultimately win this war. Uh, they, they can sort of have temporary military victories, but ultimately backed by the West and by an incredibly motivated Ukrainian population, um, they will ultimately win this. But I think in the meantime, you know, there's going to be tremendous humanitarian disaster. How difficult is this to keep the message, the, the real message, from getting to the Russian people? Is, is Putin doing a good job of keeping the messaging under wraps, or is it just a matter of time before that becomes unraveled? Well, you know, I think um, all of us were sort of hoping that, that the Russian population would sort of rise up. I think that um, so far he's been pretty good at, at you know, keeping uh, the message under wraps. Um, and I can tell you from, you know, talking to my own Russian friends, I'm shocked by the number of people who support the war, people who I think of as being liberal. Um, at the same time, you know, this war will continue to be bloody for a long time. And I can't imagine that Russians are going to continue supporting the war if you have body bags constantly coming home. What about the now world perception of Russia? Are Russians bothered by what the world now thinks of them, or do they care, or do they know? Well, I think, you know, unfortunately what's happened is that they see themselves under siege from NATO. And unfortunately, sort of the the impact of negative world opinion has worked, I think, in Putin's favor, because now he can claim that the entire world is out to get Russia and that they have to hang together, um, you know, lest they get overthrown by NATO. Um, that being said, is you know NATO's not necessarily going in and, and bombing places and, and into uh, obliterating places like like Russia is. Why why does the world want Russia? How do you sell that message? See, I mean, so I, I certainly you know I'm absolutely did not mean to say that NATO is in any way involved in this conflict directly, but that's yeah. how uh, Putin is selling it. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think. Um, that ultimately what the West can, needs to do is sort of continue to arm Ukraine, and uh, that's the only way this war can be won. Uh, Putin's daughters now uh, sanctioned. The long list of sanctions continues. Does this have any effect whatsoever? I uh, know those are kind of more symbolic gestures. I mean, they're sort of necessary, but I, I think you know the fact that his daughters are being sanctioned is not going to influence Putin's uh, decision-making. And Canada sending military uh, hardware and such, they're looking for heavy equipment now. Is Canada giving uh, Ukraine what they need, what they want? Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, this is a time when, you know, Canada uh, needs to step up, and I think it, it has for the most part. I think it's absolutely right to focus on lethal aid. We really need to focus uh, on sort of winning the war. I mean, that's basically the only way the war is going to end is to a military victory. It's not, you know, Putin has no desire to negotiate whatsoever. The focus really needs to be on lethal assistance. Luke and Wei with us, professor with the Social Sciences Department, University of Toronto, talking about Russia and their invasion of Ukraine. Luke, and thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. We are talking an awful lot about housing recently, and it's fascinating because, you know, maybe in the top five or top ten of issues around election time, uh, boy, oh boy, has that changed in the last year or so. Inflation and housing have become uh, top three issues. 
in the last little while. And it's funny in the sense because this problem has been happening for a long time. It's been it's been uh, occurring for a long time, and it just seems now that we have a shortage and and really high prices that we are now looking back at, at what's been happening. And you know, I'm a guy in my late fifties. I'm old enough to remember when in the eighties and the nineties nobody wanted to build. Building became a bad word. Uh, urban sprawl and and giant footprints and and it was really all driven by the environmental movement and we had to be conscious or cautious of how big a footprint uh, we are making and really when these battles happen uh, th- there's lots of uh, discussion around the extremes but nothing really ever gets done I remember Dalton McGinty very vividly saying I'm not interested in building any more roads but unfortunately they didn't build transit either and now we're talking about expansion of of, of go systems uh in, in the news today so you know it seems in a sense that the same group of people that was complaining about the environment is now complaining that we don't have enough houses we don't building just seems to be a bad word and now there's lots of chatter around it because it has become such a huge issue. But really, it's about how do you, you know, find different ways to get you your down payment on a house that probably no one can afford anyway. Let's bring in Tom Parkin, commentator and columnist, to get his opinion on all of this. Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Is building, is good. build a bad word in Ontario and Canada? Uh, I hope not. I, I I don't think so. But I think you've you've pointed out a couple of interesting contradictions that have been part of the problem of where we got to. I mean, I think there's many many factors about um, why house, housing prices have gotten to where they are. But one of them certainly is that if you if you don't want sprawl, well, that means that you want to build in the city. Um, so if you want to have cities that are, uh, have main streets with taller buildings on them, or, you know, built up downtowns, main streets that have uh, buildings of five or six stories along them, um, you know, to use, uh, land that's being used as a parking lot, um, for, for housing, well, then, you know, and municipalities, uh, have to put the priority because it, it has to be one or the other, either, uh, we're going to go down the line of sprawl or we're going to go down the line of trying to have more compact cities, uh, but you can't have neither. Uh, and at the end of the day, there are many factors, whether it's interest rates or or investment or, or what have you, but it really does come down to supply. There just not is not enough supply for uh the people that are coming in some have even said immigration's an issue we you know which is again contradictive because we want new more immigrants coming into the country we need them for jobs to fill jobs yet on the other hand we're not we're not building houses has the pandemic changed this our view of this um well the issue of supply i I think we've just got to the such a critical point where, where uh, th- there are three things going on. One is, is that government has actually uh, created programs to increase demand. Um, so when we've got uh, already too much demand and not enough supply, then obviously price goes up. And if you're having government programs that gives people uh, money to buy their first house, that sounds terrific. But in fact, what you're doing is juicing supply and driving up price. So those kind of government programs, uh, you know, I don't think work. 
this, the second factor, of course, is um, most people, they don't buy a house outright. They, they buy it with a mortgage. And mm-hmm. if you have a 5% mortgage, that's a whole lot different than if you've got a mortgage for, um, you know, 2.15% in terms of what is the monthly or the weekly cost. And so really, when you're buying a house, you think about, well, what is that weekly cost or monthly cost that I have to, um, that I have to pay? Uh, so if interest rates are very, very low, uh, it's going to have a depressing effect. I'm sorry. It's going to have an. Uh, it's going to cause the prices to rise because for the same uh, weekly or monthly payment, you can buy a house that's valued at a higher level because the interest is less. So there's that factor too. And you know, we people also say, and this is a very valid point. You know, we needed ultra low interest rates because of the pandemic, uh, because our economy was, uh, you know, in a, in a, they had to put in deep freeze for a few months because we didn't know what, what was going to be happening. Um, and similar after the 2008 uh, Wall Street crisis, um, you know, zero interest rates uh, were the rule for many years. So this has been, that element of it has been long, long while in the making. So there, there are there's too much too, you know, programs that are driving uh, too much demand. There's uh, the zero interest rates, but this issue of supply. Let's I'd like to get back to that because again, if it if if it's land hoarding or you know having a parking lot in downtown Hamilton that could be a, an apartment building, um, or if there's a, a nice street that's got good transit along it that's only got one story buildings. Well, why not four story buildings? Well, that does come down to the municipality coming to grips with it um, and trying to come up with a, you know, a sensible plan that, uh, you know, balances, hopefully, uh, the idea of getting cities to be a little denser, especially along major transit corridors, uh, with people who are homeowners around the corner who, you know, don't want a a 20-story tower looming over their backyard. So Uh, we're going through this. We're going through this in Hamilton right now with chatter yeah. of, of expanding urban boundaries, expand urban boundaries or fill in. And, and really, the solution is is a combination of the two. Probably, but there, but there is a yeah. lot of there is a lot of nimbyism. You know, people are saying that. But then when it comes time to put that building next to there, uh, wherever they're living, they don't want that. So uh, how do you make that more attractive to people? Well, you might you might be going outside of my own uh, level of expertise, but I'm going to offer an opinion: is that uh, when you look at look at the main streets of Hamilton, just as an example, but it could be any Ontario city. Um, there's lots of places where neighbors might object object if you um, put up a 20-story building, and and I yeah. and I get it, you know, uh, the fear, you know, I bought this house, I paid a lot for it. And now somebody's peering into my backyard. Yeah, you're going to get nimbyism. Um, but what would they, how would they feel about redeveloping a block to be six stories high? And, and talking about, you know, that's what they do in Paris, right? Beautiful city. Uh, and, and it's not really intrusive uh, to the neighbors who are in houses uh, a, a little bit further back. Um, in fact, it adds to the street life. It's a chance to redevelop. Because, you know, um, how, how else are we going to break the log jam unless we can find an accommodation for this. But I think the progressive, my honest opinion is the progressive opinion uh, in this or position in this is actually about building. And uh, because um, without that, um, we've got people without homes. We've got people living with their, with their parents uh, forever. Uh, we got, you know, people who are living multiple people into into a home and, and, and paying money that they can't afford. So is this something that we need to focus on? Like 
Do, is this something, we, Tom, we need to focus on for 10 years? Like, for example, 10 years, we need yeah. to solve this. We need a building boom. We need a housing, well, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's single, yeah. whether it's dense, uh, five to six stories as you're talking, whatever. But we need a, a building plan here, a boom plan. Well, there's some, there's some interesting ideas. For, for example, uh, federally, there's been talk, uh, and that's actually interesting because it's all, all three of the major federal parties have talked about this idea of having a housing accelerator fund. So this is the idea here is that um, it would pay money to municipalities who increase the number of units that they um, that they that actually get constructed in their municipality, yeah. the number of apartment units. So it would pay them extra money as kind of an incentive, um, which means um, you know the, the municipality has to look at its own way of doing things, and it might mean you know might mean can we change the approvals process to make that you know, uh, more more fair and, and perhaps faster, but it also looks at zoning, inclusionary zoning, as, as opposed to kind of the exclusionary rules that a lot of municipalities have to say, well, you know, uh, we can get um, a couple of hundred million bucks uh, from Ottawa uh, if we if we make these kind of um, arrangements. Maybe that's something that can pay off for the neighborhood in community resources, or maybe there's other ways of trying to so that's just an example, but breaking the logjam, I think, on that front will take some time. We'll see what the impact of rising interest rates has, though. I mean, that may not, that may start to bite, you know, within uh, within a few months, as people who are really highly leveraged, uh, you know, may some may become unable uh, to pay uh, and have to try and bail out of their um, housing situations and. Uh, you know, forcing the market down in a very unpleasant way. Commentator and columnist Tom Parkin with us talking about housing concerns that uh, have a lot of people's attention right now. Tom, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay. All right. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read Scott, of course, in your Hamilton Spectator and hear him coming up uh, moments from now. He is with us now. Scott, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I'm ready to run through a wall after that musical intro. (laughs) There you go. Something you can bob your head to. We talked last week on the show with a, uh, a music expert about why it is that music, which is invisible and you can't touch however why it physically affects your body and your performance it was a fascinating discussion and that song right there that's that's perfect example listen to that for a bit and you can't put your head down and run through a brick wall well it's like driving songs right you get one that's uh, really good next thing you yeah. know you're doing 100 miles an hour <laughs> and you've got a ticket yeah <laughs> that's right so, i didn't I, I couldn't hear the siren for the stereo officer i'm sorry about that yeah so only ever drive to the strains of yanni or zamfir but then you have, you know, then there's obviously, the, you know, the chance you that you could asleep. just, you know, doze, doze <laughs> off and end up in the median. That's not fun either. No, that, you're, right. You're, you're right. So Michael Bolton, maybe. That, is that a safe middle where it's just not good enough to get excited about, but not so slow you fall asleep? I think we should quick this conversation while we're ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, so interesting, and we're getting up to the uh, the provincial election, and I've kind of avoided talking about it until the actual campaign starts because you know we're just going to get one thing after the other. Uh, although it will take our minds off a global pandemic, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, so today, uh, the Conservatives announced their transit or transit thing and in, in laying down 200K a new track and electrifying and such. 
And everybody's talking about uh, Stephen Del Duca and his handgun ban, which you never, ever, ever hear about <laughs> during an election campaign. Uh, and you might remember it was Justin Trudeau, uh, the prime minister, who was supposed to handle this during the last election. Uh, your thoughts on the handgun ban and its populist attraction? Well, and didn't we have the mayor of Hamilton at one time say he wanted to ban guns in the city? Ban handguns Apparently, in the city, which... Yeah, which, which apparently it requires it, it requires a federal uh, law apparently right. to allow them to do that. Right, it's the char- it's, it's the Canadian Criminal Code that neither of them can do anything more than probably put in some sort of fine situation. Like Hamilton could put in a fine. So let me so just to follow the thinking here. You are someone who is going to carry a handgun into the downtown and use it for nefarious purposes, knowing that you could maybe go to jail for 25 years. But if we add a $500 fine onto that, that will be a deterrent to you from ever doing I mean, look, the whole thing was, this has to come from the federal government. And But you know what? The problem with this always is, put all the rules you want in place. If you are inclined to grab a handgun and use it, you probably don't care about the rules. And you're getting the guns not from legal purposes anyway. They're being smuggled across the border or brought in other ways. And so unless, unless, here's the one thing, but they'll never do this for a bunch of reasons, unless you put a new law in place that says simply being caught with an illegal handgun, don't have to use it. If you are caught holding an illegal handgun, you go to jail on first offense for three years, let's say. That might do something about it, but they'll never do it because they want to depopulate the prisons, not put more people in there. But otherwise, what what are you going to do? What kind of fine or penalty if you're already willing to use it and risk going away for a long, long time? What penalty is going to be effective to stop you? Yeah, well, it seems we have this discussion every uh, whenever there's an election, whenever there's uh, you know someone wants attention, we talk about yeah. handgun. And Stephen Del Duca, Stephen Del Duca today. I read the story. I didn't hear his press conference, but I read the story. The, the headline was, or one of the one of the parts was that he's proposed this, but he wasn't clear on how he was going to do this. Well, that, the, great, yeah. Scott. I am going to when I'm elected. I am going to make hundred dollar bills rain from the sky every Tuesday. How am I going to do that? Well, I haven't figured that out yet, but I'm going to do it. Just trust me on this. Like, and this would be a- propose this kind of thing. You've got to come with a solution, whether it's this or anything else. You want to come up with this great talking point idea? Fantastic. But come with the idea, come with the solution, not just with throwing out these platitudes, which is what elections have entirely become lately, and it becomes ridiculous, and then we get all distracted by this, and there's nothing to it. It is there is nothing to this right now until he provides a solution. Uh, I like the free cash Tuesday idea, though, and it'll help because today gas prices are going up. Yeah, as soon as I figure out how to do that, I'm putting my name in to run for election. Until then, I'm not. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This is Jimmy, and I'd like to extend a congratulations to the Ontario Liberals for coming up with the most original, never-been-done-before platform for an election, a gun ban. 
Thank you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.